The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. MLB show. Here are your hosts, the luckiest men on the face of the earth, Chase Podorski and Bryce Holden. Welcome to episode 54 of the Underdog Sports MLB show. The coronavirus may have stopped the baseball season, but it is not going to stop us from doing our podcast every week with Bryce Holden. My name is Chase Podorski. Um, Bryce, I don't know about you. I have been back in Livingston, New Jersey with my entire household, all four of us, dog included, uh, since last Thursday. Went into the city briefly yesterday to just pick up some stuff, and it was an absolute ghost town. Um, But I know because you were telling me about it a little bit, you know, a a big theme of the coronavirus is helping one another and, you know, being there for one another as much as we can. And, Bryce, you did that in a big way the past week. Uh, You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, uh, my sister – Hannah, love her to death. Uh, she uh, she wasn't she wasn't having a great time in Westchester with her stepdad. You know that's a story for a different podcast. Probably a more uh, more of a therapy uh, a therapy uh, driven podcast more so than a baseball one. Possibly the talking just a, doctor, uh, if we will. Probably probably just for a uh, private conversation with an aforementioned talking doctor. But anyway, uh, I let my sister come on down to my apartment. Uh, and Chase, you know the layout of my apartment. It's like if it's just me kicking it, or let's say I have like a, a lady over that can spend the night, and we can share the bedroom, or even like a buddy per- on the couch. Oh, you go on. Oh, it's you the, go. It's the it's the perfect from an outsider perspective. It's the perfect one bedroom apartment for somebody in college living on their own. You know, a good sized living room, kitchen with the living room, a table where you can more or less comfortably fit four people a good size bedroom, or it's a good place to have like a pregame, like four or five of us come over, got to do it, on the it, couch, it's, got to it's perfect the for seven. Perfect for seven, um, nine if people are doing drugs in the back, which they're not. I just but, I just wanted to say I I just wanted to say that for all our visual learners on the show. Yeah, so it's it's cool, but the the AC is weird, there's not great lighting, and I forfeited the, the bedroom to my sister and I AC spent not what? The AC's loud. The AC, AC's loud. Yeah, it's loud, so you can't really do the AC and sleep in the living room, so it gets really hot at night. And, like, again, you spend nights on the couch. So I, I could launch a list of our friends that spend nights on the couch. And it's fine for a night, but when you're not moving, when you're not leaving your apartment at all, basically, and you're spending upwards of 20 hours a day on that couch – that's a lot of time to spend on a couch, man. So my sister is spending these next couple nights at Billy's, letting at a, our dad, letting me recharge the batteries, and then we'll be back in the same mess come Wednesday. So unrelated, I mean, it's great what you did for your sister. I'm doing this podcast in my dad's office just because it's one of the only rooms in my house where there's a little bit of isolation. And I saw a baseball card out of the corner of my eye. And you know me, if I see any kind of sports card, I'm going to look at it. That's just who well, I that's am. Well, that's just natural. That's a natural. 
That's a natural response to seeing a baseball card and or my, any sort and of my, And my dad has in his room a I'm, – I'm reading the note right now, you know, who it's from. It looks like it was from his mother. So my grandmother got this for him. 2006. So this has been in my dad's office coming on 14 years. And I've lived in this household for a good chunk of the 23 and a half years of my life. And I've never once seen this in his office. Um, it is a 1966 Topps baseball card commemorating the sixth place New York Yankees. Why the fuck would they make a baseball card to commemorate a team coming in sixth place in their division? I, I, I guess know. in the league at that point. I, I, I do not know. The Yankees were in 66, came in sixth place. Um, yeah, I mean, those were like the really bad in-between years. So now, now in addition to the number 54, I got to give you some details on the 66 Yankees. Um, they finished 70 and 89. They finished, I guess it was sixth in the division because this is 10th in the American League, it says. Um, That's bad. The, I mean, dude, I'm looking at this team. Uh, the leading the leading hitter on the team, Mickey Mantle, led the team in average with 288 at his age 34 season. You know, Mick was definitely on the downside of his career. Bobby Richardson was on this team. Elston Howard, um, Mel Studemeyer was the ace. Uh, not a lot of positives on this team. No, but um, uh, yeah, Mickey Mantle. It's. It doesn't suck that Mickey like I guess more so for Mickey Mantle than anyone else at this point. I mean, if that guy didn't get hurt, does he get more respect as the greatest player ever? Does he get, does he get I mean, thrown in that conversation Joe, if, more? If Joe, if Joe DiMaggio, you know, called Mickey Mantle off in the 51 World Series and Mantle doesn't trip on the drain pipe, yeah, I mean, Mantle's he's already an inner circle Hall of Famer. And for what it's worth on that 100th grade, 100 greatest players countdown on the athletic. Mantle just checked in at 11. So despite everything with the injuries and the alcoholism okay. and everything, this still has him as the 11th best player of all time. I mean, that's, well, that's, that's, though, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, that's said, though, his knees good. were never the same. The knees were never the same. He was never healthy the rest of the year because of it. And despite all of that, he still hit 536 homers, had a 298 average, a 421 on base percentage. And this, to me, is the most incredible thing in Mantle's career, which uh, – like you said, it's probably on some level underappreciated for a three-time MVP and a seven-time World Series champion. He struck out 1,710 times in his career. That's a shit ton of strikeouts, but he still walked more than he struck out in his career. I feel like you, you I, I think you, you read into that incorrectly because that is a lot of strikeouts, man. <laughs> that's a no, lot of that's, strikeouts. Yeah, but at the same time, though, he still was disciplined enough of a hitter that he struck out over 1,700 times and still had more walks in his career than a strikeout, than strikeout. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's, where is that all time? Doesn't Jim Tomey have the all time strikeout record? A kind of a random so, guy, all things considered to have that record. So it's, he's eighth in career walks and strikeouts. He's 36th and uh, Jim Tomey is second with 2,548 strikeouts. Um, the guy who's number one, first ballot Hall of Famer, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. Yeah, so I guess maybe you shouldn't look too much into strikeouts, especially in today's game when it's okay. 
it's okay to strike out as long as you hit a bunch of dingers, which Jim Tomey and Reggie Jackson did. Yep. So moving to the Yankees before we get into how Corona has affected the MLB in the past week, uh, number 54 for the New York Yankees. Um, I would say the two guys who are most well-known for this number, uh, one is a Hall of Fame release pitcher and one is on his way. Uh, Goose Gossage, when he was a New York Yankee, he wore 54 in pinstripes from 78 to 83, made four all-star teams, won a World Series as part of his Hall of Fame career. Um, Lee Mazzilli wore it as a coach for the Yanks from 2000 to 2001. Don Zimmer wore it in 2002 to 2003. Kevin Long, the Yankee hitting coach, wore it from 2007 to 2014. I didn't realize how long uh, he was our hitting coach. Um, he was good at it. Has re- Chapman wore it in 16, 17, 18, and 19. He still wears it today. Um, but, and this is a big shout-out to our dear friend and the co-founder of this podcast, Alex Spector. In 2016, when Chapman got traded, number 54 on the New York Yankees was none other than the one, the only, Richard Blyer. Good for him. I, that's a Spector question. Actually, I'm sure we can get Spector back in if you want, now that no one's doing anything. I mean, based on what his Twitter activity has been the past couple of days and how he's described his life, yeah, he's doing absolutely nothing. He's really taking to Twitter as an absolutely nothing thing. As, Which I mean, good. I mean, he he's he is funny. I will give him that. He is funny. He's, he's no, he's no, he's not as funny as his brother, but few can it's be. It's a different and his brother. It's a different kind of funny. Yeah, his brother is like you. You love to laugh at Alex. His brother's not in. Laughing. His brother's not in on the joke. Not all the time. <laughs> not all the time. All right. Actually, so something that's not fu- more often than not, he's not. I agree. So something that is not funny is obviously the coronavirus. A um, couple different aspects of baseball that we're going to look at, and then we're going to go into our first underdog sports show rewatchables um, with one of me and Bryce's favorite baseball movies. But we're going to keep you on the edge of that. Uh, give you something to listen in for later on. Uh, so this past week, we had our first positive uh, coronavirus test in the MLB. Um, a minor leaguer in the New York Yankee system tested positive for coronavirus. Um, he was quarantined last Friday morning after saying he was running a fever. A second Yankee minor leaguer has since tested positive. Um, the Yankees have told all their minor league players that they should quarantine for two weeks, um, and the team will deliver food to the players in their hotel rooms. Um, along with that, this past Monday, effective immediately, MLB is prohibiting all scouting activity, both domestic and international. There will be no tryouts, public or private, no attending of amateur games, showcase workouts, no in-home or in-person visits, or scouting remotely. Um, and then when the CDC this week said that the, uh, they recommend that there should be no gatherings of 50 or more people for at least eight weeks, uh, the MLB followed suit on that. Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, said, we did agree with the MLBPA that spring training sites would remain open, but the thought there is that with the skeleton crew, really to give players some place to use the gym as opposed to being forced out into a public gym, we're really encouraging players to make decisions as to where they want to be over an extended period of time and get to that location as soon as possible. We're providing detailed social distancing recommendations in the context of baseball operations to the clubs today. So a few things I want to break down there. The first is for us as a Yankee fan. They haven't revealed what minor league player for the Yankees has coronavirus. Do we think that it was a – do we think if it was a mainstream prospect, we would know about it by now? No, because it's a medical issue, and it's up to the player to reveal his own diagnosis. That's that's a, that's a crazy question. It's if the uh, it's uh, it's up to the player. If you have coronavirus, 
you can keep it to yourself or you can go public with it. That's why two, two Lakers have stayed anonymous, but Mark the Smart posted on Twitter that he has it. It's really a medical issue. It's like a, uh, it's a per, it's, it's, it's what's one of your rights. You're, you can keep your medical records private. You don't have to share that. This is coming from a guy in the healthcare consulting industry, um, or maybe just a guy with common sense. Could be either or. Um, you know, in terms of the Yankees, in terms of the Yankees minor leaguers being quarantined, um, you know, what what do you as the New York Yankees, you know, recommend to those players to be doing in the next, you know, two weeks or so? They're having their meal delivered, so I guess the Yankees have some control over their nutrition the next two weeks. But basically, in your hotel room, you're you're confined to you know, talking with your roommates, playing video games and watching TV. Um, you know, I know, well, there's a lot of unpre- I know there's a lot of unpredictability in terms of, you know, when baseball is going to resume activities. But for these players specifically, you know, what do you think they should be doing to try to pass the time in terms of, you know, baseball activities? Or at this point, it's just let them be quarantined for two weeks and then, you know, we can get back to the baseball side of things afterwards. Juggling, maybe juggle. If you want to do something productive to baseball, but realistically, you just got to hang out, do some push-ups, do some sit-ups, um, jump rope if you got it. But you're really just kind of boned like the rest of us, man. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, so when Rob Manford made this announcement, it was right around March 15th, March 16th, the eight-week announcement. Um, so that would mean spring training can't resume until at the earliest, we would say May 15th, May 16th. And that's the best case scenario that this virus, you know, does start to slowly go away and we can have gatherings of 50 or more people. Uh, all that said, with this new information in, in mind, you know, what is the earliest in your mind that you really think we're going to see baseball begin uh, opening day for the 2020 season? Um, the earliest? For, well, I think baseball, they might have to play half the season. It might, it might, for – with fans, I don't know if, when fans would be able to make it back. Um, granted, baseball is already a 25-man roster plus all the coaches, so it would fly in the face of the 50-plus person gathering just on its, just by its own, just by the construct of a league. So if they're saying eight in an absolute best-case scenario, May 15th they can resume spring training. So then you'd have a June one start date. I I just don't think. And this has been my whole – I mean, we've spoken about this for other things. Like, you can't just say we're going to start on this day without having any sort of you know, evidence behind that day. You can't just throw out a random day. You have to see progress where you can announce a day. So, yeah, I would think I, – I I'd, I'd give it an extra month after that. I'd say maybe, maybe, maybe they could do something like a July 4th, welcome back to baseball, America's birthday. I was going to say okay. the earliest that I could I, – I was going to say the earliest I could see opening day is probably like June 20th through July 1st just because even if you could get the gatherings back by May 15th, you know, players are dispersed around the world right now. By the time you get everyone back in spring training, it's going to be a couple of days before workouts really resume and the games get going. Um, and along those lines, you know, the, the MLB needs to play it safe. You know, Saris wrote about this for the Athletic. Um, and there's a lot of GMs I think we're going to see injuries more than – ever before, more so than ever before this year. We're going to see a lot of elbow injuries and, you know, forearm injuries for pitchers who are ramping it up like they're not supposed to. Uh, for players running the bases, we're expecting a lot of hamstring, oblique, quad injuries, um, just because these guys are going to push themselves as if they've been gradually building up 
you know, throughout spring training, April, May, and the body's just physically not going to be able to respond to it like it's supposed to. Yeah, that's why I'd, I'd say they're better off being safe than sorry. Baseball really, again, I, I don't know when the peak viewership for baseball is anyway, but I would imagine they just need that post, that pennant chase or that, uh, that end of the, into the season to be what it is. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if it's something like that. Ooh, my favorite Chinese restaurant has free delivery right now. Fuck with that. Hey, wait, it's all about finding the silver linings and the positives in times like these. Um, in terms of pay for major leaguers and minor leaguers, um, the MLBPA this week announced that they've acted to provide emergency funds to certain players who are now staring at a potential loss and delay of wages. Has initiated a program to provide an $1,100 weekly stipend to players at the park camp. The effort was initially rather limited, but now has been brought to cover a wider class of MLB players. Per Ken Rosenthal, the MLBPA will now offer the sum through April 9th to all players who are on a 40-man roster as of March 13th of this year, even if they were already on optional assignment. Also included are all non-roster invitees to big league camps who, accrued, uh, who accumulated at least one day of MLB service in the 2019 season. And per Bob Nightingale, the MLB and the union agreed to have all players on non-guaranteed contracts receiving 45 days of termination pay if they don't make the 40-man roster. Uh, the clubs will have a deadline of one day before the anticipated start of the season and five days before the season on retention bonus decisions. Uh, so I give the MLB Players Association credit here. I mean, again, um, $1,100 a week is not necessarily what these guys would be making, you know, come April into the regular season, but it is money for them to at least provide for themselves in their family. Um, I think the big thing here is for guys who weren't necessarily going to be on the 25, 26 man roster to be uh, on the team for opening day in the majors. I think for the 40 man guys and the non-roster invite guys to get paid, um, that's huge. And I give the Players Association credit for at least stepping up to cover as many people as they could cover uh, who are staring at financial losses here. Yeah, I mean, again, it's for the from the owners. It's not at the end of the day that money is just uh, is really Jump inconsequential. Change. It's inconsequential for them. They as long as the players are getting something out of it, because. They, I mean, they're 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 the players. Like they, this is how they make their money. This is how they live. This is how they provide for their family. And you really need to make sure you can provide for your families, especially right now. Yeah, for minor leaguers, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, and I know such a big prevailing narrative of the coronavirus and spring training and the regular season being delayed is well, minor leaguers don't get paid until they play an actual game in the minor league season. Um, and this week, the MLB announced that each player who was under a minor league uniform player contract will receive a lump sum equal to the allowances that would have been paid through April 8th. The exceptions to this plan are non-40-man roster players who are already receiving major league allowances, players who are currently receiving housing, food, or other services from clubs, and players who are not participating or expected to participate in minor league spring training. MLB remains in communication with clubs on the development of an industry-wide plan for minor league player compensation from April 9th to the beginning of the coming season. The announcement also called this plan an initial step as MLB intends to continue working with all 30 clubs to identify additional ways to support those players as a result of the delayed 2020 season. In essence, the league now has a couple more weeks to figure out a long-term answer to the problem of paying minor league players and miss the countless other issues that must be addressed during this prolonged shutdown. Um, the Rays, Mets, Dodgers, and Blue Jays, they were the first ones to make arrangements in terms of uh, providing their minor league players with a stipend. This now form formalizes it across baseball. Uh, the minimum that they're going to get is $400 a week 
some teams such as the teams that I just mentioned and the Blue Jays, um, they're going to give more to their players. Um, And I heard you just say, oh, boy. I mean, again, $400 a week is what they were getting roughly, you know, in spring training. They had a $25 to $30 um, daily stipend. Chase, and I'm going to be honest. That, that oh boy came from me not understanding how much the uh, the uh, that Chinese lunch was going to cost me. The uh, my oh, Chinese that's food a, is on the way. That's okay. It is, um, it's on the way. Everything worked out. It was the it was the right amount of money. It was it was correct. Fantastic. Uh, and I mean, and one less thing for you. Well, $400 a week doesn't sound like a lot. Um, again, I think Colin McHugh put it best a few weeks ago. You know, he took a while to get to the big leagues with the Astros and really break in as a productive big league player. And he said, you know, $400, $800, whatever the number is, you got to keep in mind when you're expected to get $0, every dollar counts. Um, and I think yeah, it's, I'm, I think I'm in that boat right now. When I, I'm, I, think, I was – I make – I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to get into how much I make this week. But I go into when I go to school, I expect to make zero dollars a week. I don't expect to have a job. But now, even working from home, that they're going to let me come home, and I'll be able to sit with my buddy and we'll type away and do our work. Like getting anything, money's helpful. It's good to have money when you can when you need it. Yeah, I think this is a great start, but I think this needs to be the start of a larger conversation. Uh, Emily Walden of the Athletic, who's also started a uh, program for minor leaguers to be sponsored by fans across the country puts minor league players in touch with you know fans in terms of giving them you know gift cards, food shopping, resources. Just because even if a fan is helping with fifty to one hundred dollars that they have to spare, that goes so so long goes such a long well, way. A lot of minor leaguers, a lot of minor leaguers, because their salaries are relatively small compared. I mean, especially if you compare it to the major leaguers, uh, a lot of minor league players actually stay. At, they they live with people. In their in the small towns by the stadium, yeah, you with know, host they, families, they have the host families, like exchange students. So uh, this oh. is what Emily this is what Emily Walton had to say, and this to me is why this needs to be part of a larger discussion in the next year or so. Um, she said, while the payment plan reads as encouraging, there is no information about support beyond April 8th when players would normally begin receiving their first check of the season. The bigger blow is the uncertainty about whether we will even get a paycheck on the season, an NLAA player said. While so many, with so many places shutting down, no one is looking for part-time workers, so in the meantime, it's scraping by and teaming together with other minor leaguers to make it work. Um, she then listed the average salaries at each level of the minors. Triple A, it's 21.50 per month in the first year, 2,400 per month in their second, and 2700 a month in the third year, uh, estimated 11825 to $14,850 per year. Double A, 1700 per month, which goes up by 100 per month for added years, estimated 9350 9, plus a year. High A, low A is 1160 to 1500 per month, raised by $50 per year for added years, estimated 6380 to $8,400 per year. Uh, and these salaries need to cover rent, equipment, transportation, supporting the family, living necessities, and so on. Um, so, again, the most a minor leaguer is making is about fifteen grand a year. And, again, a lot of these guys, if, you know, they were high draft picks, get signing bonuses, but let's take that out of the equation for a second. Um, by comparison, the nationally recognized poverty line was an annual 12490 for a single-person household in 2019, and in 2020 that line was raised to 12760 annually. Unless you're a AAA player, if you're a minor league baseball player, you are by definition well into living in poverty in the United States of America. And I know minor league leaguers aren't unionized. I know, 
MLB has the antitrust and this and that. But to me, you read this, uh, even though they're not in the majors, these guys are still technically playing professional sports for a living. And the fact that they're doing so living below the poverty line is unfathomable to me. Nah, it's it's something else. I think that's why a lot of major leaguers have a lot of resentment towards towards Tebow taking up this roster spot. <laughs> I mean, a guy like Tim Tebow, I love him to death, but every time the Mets advance him up a level, that's money, that's opportunity for someone that really needs it and really should be having it. Someone who's actually worked. Not that Tebow doesn't work hard now, but. This is a fallback career for him. I mean, most minor league baseball players. Ooh, except for what is that movie? The Rookie? Is that the Dennis Quaid movie, Chase? You ever see that one? I mean, I, I was assuming that that will eventually be a part of our rewatchables. But even The Rookie, it's, I think it's different when it's a guy who has tried to play baseball his whole life and gets into the majors 35-36 versus a Tim Tebow who, and I've never thought I would compare Tim Tebow to Michael Jordan, but a Tim Tebow type who played another sport and then was just like, you know what, I'm going to give baseball a shot. Yeah, I mean, but again, that's a roster spot, that's money, that's that's just a lot of stuff that should be going to, that he really could do. I mean, I'm sure he could I mean, could do with that, right? He's got the ESPN job. He's, I'm, I'm going to make like, a comparison to, a, I'm going to make a comparison to another movie. You've seen Bolt Durham, right? Obviously. Yeah. Like, you look like a guy like Crash Davis, who in the movie is a lifelong minor league player, gets a cup of coffee at the bigs, but that's it. And, and by the end of the movie, sets the record for the most home runs ever by a minor league player. If you're a guy like Crash Davis, who's played in the minors for nine to ten years, and a guy like Tim Tebow is advancing through the minors just because of his name, you want to fucking kill that guy. Oh, yeah. But he is Tim Tebow, so I wouldn't kill him. So all that said, I mean, do you think, given how much minor leaguers are going to struggle because of this and the statistics that Emily Walton puts out there, are we going to see any change? Or just given that the MLB is looking to, you know, contract minor league teams as it is and because yeah, of the antitrust thrown into it, that we're, this, is, this is the reality, unfortunately. I think this is actually – I think uh, since the MLB does want to get rid of the minor league, if anything, this expedites that. This expedites that process. and. The, uh, the, the minor leaguers are not getting any handouts. The, the minor league teams are – the unfortunate reality is they're, they're fucked. I, I, let, me ask, let, me, let me ask you this. Say, say they do cut the 40 or 42 minor league teams that Rob Manfred wants to get rid of. Do you think then as a result of that with fewer players in the minors that that will then be what causes players to get a raise? They have to unionize first because right now they have absolutely no – I, 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 barring a union, no. I think it's just going to be a cut cost. I think it's just going to be an, a um, a casualty of the whole situation. Makes sense to me. Um, one last thing with Corona before we go into a couple what-ifs and a few just quick injury updates. Um, I give a lot of credit to Major League Baseball. Um, they announced this week that all 30 Major League clubs will have established 1 million funds to cover the lost wages of their game day and event staff during the league-wide shutdown. Um, Rob Manfred offered the following statement on the team's actions, saying, over the past 48 hours, I've been approached by representatives of all 30 clubs to help assist the thousands of ballpark employees affected by the delay in the start of the Major League Baseball season. 
motivated by a desire to help some of the most valuable members of the baseball community. Each club is committed $1 million. The individual clubs will be announcing more details surrounding their support in their local communities. The timing of these announcements will vary because of the need to coordinate with the state and local laws, as well as the collective bargaining obligations. In an effort to maximize the benefits realized by each group of employees, I am proud that our clubs came together so quickly and uniformly to support these individuals who provide so much to the game that we love. Um, I guess my question for you here is, you know, if, if there isn't an ownership group like the Illiches of the Tigers who immediately came out and pledged $1 million to their fans, or not to their fans, to their, to their workers, um, where there's, I guess, the example and the role model to set amongst ownership groups, do you think that this happens if nobody makes the first steps? I'd like to think it does. Well, I mean, you saw, like, it was, I think Cuban did it in the NBA. He did it just, like, I mean, he did it immediately. So the precedent was set out there by another sport, another owner. Um, it would have been, from an, just, like, $1 million is nothing compared to the PR nightmare that would have come for these owners had they not done anything like this. So they probably, somebody would have gotten in their ear and advised this move. Yeah, they had to do it from a PR standpoint. Uh, one thing, my, my dad, I guess, is listening from the bedroom and hearing us talk. Uh, and one point that he wanted us to make was, you know, in terms of the minor leaguers, you know, whether it's players who were career minor leaguers like a Buck Showalter or Tori Lovello and who went on to become great managers or even managers themselves. You know, we've seen Mike Schilt, Brian Snicker in the past few years, um, even Luis Rojas, the new manager of the Mets, who coached and worked their way up through the minor leagues. Um, to now get to where they become big league managers, you know, do we think we're going to see a decline in guys who I guess get to the major leagues the hard way and see more of the Aaron Boone, Rocco Bedelli, Gabe Kapler, you know, young analytic type guys? Yeah, but I think that trend was going to happen regardless, even though I think that trend was going to happen regardless. It's an interesting point, but I mean, think about it with, Baseball so analytically driven these days. Essentially, the, the manager is just a mouthpiece for these analytics guys. And I know that – doesn't that piss someone off? I forgot which manager got really pissed off at that. But, you know, like, what, what are they going to do? They're not going to say no to data. You know, like, I guess, unless you're David Fisdale. Correct. Sad. So sad, but true. Um Ken Rosenthal had a couple what-ifs that him and Evan Drellick wrote about regarding the coronavirus that I want your opinion on real quick. Um, and it's just how MLB is going to handle different things, the first of which is service time. Um, they use Mookie Betts, for example. He'll be 27, going to probably get the biggest free agent contract of all time next year. He's 102 days shy of becoming eligible for the open market, um, and if the delay caused him to fall short, he would be free entering his age 29 season instead of his age 28 season. Um, if the season gets short really? to say a hundred games, that's interesting. If the season gets shortened to say a hundred games, um, you know it would be easy. You just do proportions. Um, but at what point do you think the owners say, you know, we need to play at least this amount of games in order for a player to accumulate even proportionally a year of service time? Um. I, I would say, I mean, I, I'll I'll flip it on you and talk in the put it in the NBA perspective. Like you, at this point in the NBA regular season, do you think do you think it's it's been a sufficient regular season? Could you confidently say 
you know who these teams are, you know who these players are. They played about 80% of the game. Um, you know, I, I think my answer – I mean, no. No is the answer, but I think you need to look to, you know, historical well, look, precedent my, and, I, and, in terms of, like, what the least amount of games played in the season has been. My, like the my NBA is going to be was in, done NBA's done 50-game season. But the, my point is going right. to be less. It doesn't really matter about the front end. All that comes, it's only the only thing that really matters in the history books is going to be the back end. So as long as they have enough that they can feel that they feel the postseason, I think this season is going to count. And then they should do it proportionally from whatever day that is. Do you have a number in mind that you think would be the minimum amount of games to get that consideration? I mean, it's a 162-game season usually. I mean, if, you, if they have to play under 100, it, it would be tough to actually – it would be tough to rationalize on anything less than 100. So my other question would be going hands-in-hands hands with that. You know, what do you, do you think there's a certain minimum amount of games that um, players will need to accumulate for a full year of service time in terms of arbitration? Um, and going hands-in-hands hands with that, you know, how much do you think players are going to get screwed just because arbitration is so reliant on old-school stats like homers or RBIs where, you know, the example they give is a guy like Matt Olson, where if he hit 40 home runs this year, which was a real possibility, he would tie Ryan Howard for the most homers by a player heading into arbitration for the first time. Obviously, with the season being shorted, it's increasingly less and less likely that that's going to happen. Uh, you just kind of have to proportion it out, but it seems like it's going to big advantage. To the club. Yeah, I mean, to me, these are the two. The, the, the service time aspect, I think, even more so than players getting paid, is where this is going to get a little bit contentious between the owners and the players' association um, in terms of, you know, however many games end up getting played this season. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Hopefully, that May 15th timeline is, ends up being correct, and that's, and then we're all good to go from there. But. So, what's. So with scouting done, the amateur draft is usually supposed to be June 10th to 12th. Um, and one possibility that's been discussed is canceling the 2020 draft and holding a combined draft for the 20 and 21 classes. Um, it would be problematic for college juniors and high school seniors, both of whom would turn professional a year later than planned. Um, and delay would hinder their future earning power in a sport obsessed with actuarial tables, um, especially if you're a college senior, there's nowhere to go. Um, and how would it work for a high school senior when they become draft eligible as a college freshman? You and I have discussed this from the lens of through camp. You know, if God forbid camp got canceled, what do you do with the upper senior group? You can't combine them into two. Um, to me, this would be a huge thing because if you cancel the draft this year, you're screwing an entire two years' worth of amateur players, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you, you, you can have a draft. I, I think you have to go off the tape, but you can, you can have a draft. It's the, you can host a draft. And Even if you cool. reduce the rounds, I, I think somebody threw yeah. out like reducing the draft to 20 rounds. You got to just have something. You have to have a draft. You can't, you can't just not have a draft. That's ridiculous. Yep. All right. Before we get into rewatchables, a uh, couple quick injury notes. Uh, Chris Dale underwent Tommy John surgery this week. He'll be out for roughly the next 12 to 15 months per the usual recovery timeline and will miss all of the 2020 season comes less than three weeks after Sarah was diagnosed with a flexor strain following elbow soreness in his throwing elbow. Um, he actually didn't get the surgery yet. The Red Sox haven't included an actual date yet per Joel Sherman. Um, 
that it'll probably be sometime in the next few weeks. But again, who knows what the timeline's going to look like, given how elective medical procedures are increasingly being canceled in the U.S. and around the world. This was going to be the first year of sales, uh, five-year, $145 million extension with the Red Sox. Again, if he's going to get Tommy John, he'll miss this year, but it's going to be a shortened season, probably be back around June next year, depending on when he gets the surgery. Um, but if you're a Red Sox fan, given that you have sales signs at $29 million a year for the next five years, um, how concerned are you? And also, how shitty has it just been for Boston in general, given that since February, um, St. Patrick's Day got canceled, the, marath- the marathon got canceled, Beck is gone, Brady's gone, and sales getting Tommy John surgery. Did you – there was a tweet I saw. It says all the people that bought all the athletes that bought the sports have lost since in the last year and a half, starting with Gronk, Brady, lost Gronk, Brady, Betts, Price, Kimbrell, uh, who else? Kyrie, Horford, the Stanley Cup. Like, I guess like Boston as a whole kind of had it coming because they won a bunch of stuff. I also uh, wouldn't be too shocked if the Patriots end up being better, but that's besides the point. If I'm a Red Sox fan right now, like I've been saying all along, man, this is just a lost season. Uh, this is just a lost season for the team. If anything, getting set, having to lose sale for this year probably helps more so than if he had to miss a year, this is the year for him to miss. Assuming everything works out well and people recover, I mean, People recover fine from Tommy John. Tommy John. Is I feel really... like though. I feel like I've never seen though somebody with the physical build of Chris Sale recover that well. Again, I mean this guy, uh, dude. I'm pretty sure me and you have more muscle on our body than Chris Sale. Interesting, because I'm negative muscle. I don't have muscle. I actively decline muscle. I I I mean the guy is six seven one seventy. He physically doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, but he's a really good pitcher when he's on, so. I agree. I guess, uh, another ace. With, with, good luck, Chris Hale. Yeah. Another ace who got surgery. Astros announced Tuesday Justin Verlander underwent a surgical procedure on his right groin. He was slowed by a lat strain earlier this month, but was also scratched from an earlier spring start due to tightness in the groin. Uh, that was deemed a precautionary measure at the time, but GM James Click revealed today the right ender had a setback in rehabbing the issue. Uh, should be out about six weeks, so again, Given the timeline, uh, with the season pushed back at least eight weeks, he should be good to go for opening day. But, again, Verlander's getting older. Garrett Cole and Wade Miley are gone. Um, how concerned heading into the 2020 season as an Astros fan are you uh, about Verlander's health right now? Again, if you have to do it, now's the time. He'll have at least at least two and a half months to recover. So you hang your hat on that if you're an Astros fan. And just hope. I mean, even without Verlander, that lineup's still good. They still got Granky and what? They still rolling out Granky, McCullers, and or Kitty or Creedy. Yeah, it's not a bad one, two, three, but you definitely need a healthy Verlander if that team wants to go far, especially without the trash cans. The trash can, the trash can insult was exactly what we needed um, on a day like today. Um, and Trevor Bauer, he did a, a charity wiffle ball game in. Uh, in Arizona, just with Major League Baseball players to raise money for team workers who are now out of a job. And the trash can jokes were just free-flowing there. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, one last injury update, and it makes me think that Aaron Judge is just a physical freak. Uh, he revealed that he had a he – re- 
man, what is going on in your neck of the woods? That was some good honking. Nothing? Nothing going on there? Very quick delivery. I believe it was the Chinese food I had ordered earlier. That makes sense. Um, it was it was a pretty good honk on the outside. I guess New York City isn't completely dead. Um, but Judge revealed that he had a collapsed lung that is healed and said his broken rib is improving. He said the bone is still about the same slight improvement. Uh, the bone is healing the way it should be, so probably another test here in a couple more weeks and go from there. He added that the scan showed a no-month no thorax can't even say that word, came back completely gone. A little thing on the lung that we were having a little issue with, but that was all healed up. Good to go, which means I can fly if I needed to go home. This guy was not only playing through the postseason with a broken rib, but also with a partially um, collapsed lung, which just leads me to think that he is an animal, and I apologize for any of my judges' injury-prone comments that I made in the past few weeks. It was, in fact, the Chinese food from earlier. It is here. I'm excited. Got my chicken and broccoli. But I, you don't have to apologize for calling Judge injury prone because he has an injury. Injury prone. But he just keeps getting injured. That's, I guess that does make quite a bit of sense. I mean, yeah, he's tough and plays through it, but it would be a lot better if he was fully healthy. I'm with you there. Um, one one last coronavirus-related thing, and then we'll get on to our rewatchables. This came from Joel Sherman this week, and it was what players' Hall of Fame candidacies are going to be affected most by the games missed this year due to the coronavirus. And the comparison he made was Fred McGriff from 94 to 95. Braves played 258 games, and McGriff participated in 257 of them. But it should have been the standard 324 games. Um, but because of the labor stoppage in 94 and 95, the Braves only played 258 games. That was 66 potential lost games from McGriff in his prime, and he was in the midst of arguably the best season of his career in 94. Um, if he had continued to stay on the trajectory of averaging 4.28 plate appearances per game and a homer, every 17.7 plate appearances, he would have hit 16 more homers. That would have put him at 509, tied for 26 all-time with Gary Sheffield. Instead, he finished with 493 and did not make the Hall of Fame. Um, in his 15 years of eligibility, had he hit 500, he would have been a slam dunk given that he played clean. Um, so a couple guys who I just thought were interesting points here uh, that I wanted to run by you. The first of which is Robbie Cano. I mean, he needs 430 hits for 3,000, and obviously with him getting older, every game counts. But even if Cano gets 3,000 hits, do you agree that once he failed that drug test, it doesn't matter? Even if he gets 3,000 hits, he's not going into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I love Cano as much as anyone, but it's tough. It's tough to see him getting in with that, with that fail test. That's so this, that's so this was an interesting one. Yeah, I'm with you. So this is an interesting one in terms of, you know, how much you look at a player's peak versus his whole career. And this is Jacob DeGrom. Um, Sherman wrote that I wrote recently that DeGrom's Hall of Fame case would likely have to mimic that of Roy Holiday, a late bloomer who assembled a decade of greatness from ages 25 to 34. DeGrom has had six brilliant campaigns beginning at age 26, losing much of his age 32 season this year when at his peak would be a body blow to his Cooperstown opportunity. Maybe futures will not, future voters will not care about wins at all, but sitting at 66 career victories looks bad for his Hall portfolio right now. A third Cy Young would help, so would a fourth. Um, I mean, has the Grom's peak? Third think, Cy Young, you need it. You need the do you third think the Grom's? Do you think the Grom's peak, though? The past, I mean, the peak is the first six years of his career has been such where if he does this for ten years, he 
you know, get the Sandy Koufax type merit into Cooperstown? Um, he could, but he would need, he needs he needs to put together two at least two more dominant seasons. It's like it doesn't it has to be similar to what he put together these last couple because sixty six wins, yeah, kill the win all you want, but sixty six wins is not Hall of Fame. That's not a Hall of Fame. And you can't. That's yeah. not Hall of Fame quality. That's not enough. It just is. Like, True. I don't know what the number is, but and he can be he can be the greatest pitcher in baseball, the best pitcher the last couple of years. But he's got 21 wins to show for it, and that's and at the end of the day, that's just not winning enough games to get in the hall, if you ask me. So the next three guys that he looped together were Felix Hernandez, Cole Hamels, and John Lester. I mean, of those three, I think Lester, as great as he's been in the postseason, uh, again, he's won three rings. I, I don't think Lester's done enough necessarily in the regular season to get in. Um, I think Felix, as great as the peak was at the beginning of his career, I mean, he he has essentially stopped being an effectively effective big league pitcher after 31, 32 years old. Um, Hamels, to me, is the most interesting case of this because he's 36 years old. You know, right now he's sitting at a war total right around 60, 163 wins, 342 ERA, and 25,000 uh, or 2,558 strikeouts. Where if he pitches a few more years, a 200 win career and a 3,000 strikeout career isn't out of the realm of possibility. I still don't think Cole Hamels is a Hall of Famer, um, but of those three, who do you think would be affected the most um, by this missed time? Um, I really like every point you just made. I think Lester has far, Lester is the most decorated postseason pitcher, but might have the worst regular season body of work. Uh, Felix would be the opposite, and then Cole Hamels would be right in the middle. So. Yeah, I think Cole Hamels is the one that's going to be affected the most because if he hits those milestones, he's got the ring, he's got the LCS and World I think he has the LCS and World Series. Oh, he has the yeah, he won both, won both in 2008. So he has all those – he's got all that cool stuff on his record. Uh, as part of a no-hitter, so he's done everything right. If he can get – I think if he can get – I think 3,000 strikeouts would be the one, more so than 200 wins. So the next guy on this list. Some strikeouts, and I think he's in. Yeah, and then I think it becomes interesting. Um, The next two guys on this list, one of them I already think is a Hall of Famer. Uh, The first one is Zach Greinke. Um, He compares Zach Greinke to Mike Mussina, um, saying that through both pitchers' age 35 season, Moose had a 2,833 in the third innings, a 126 ERA plus, and 68.3 war. Greinke's at 2,872 innings, a 125 ERA plus, and 65. 0.9 0.9 war. Moose pitched four more full seasons, two of them ex- excellent. Um, I mean, look, with Greinke, um, I don't know what war that Joel Sherman is looking at because baseball reference has him at 71, but that's also probably including the fact that Greinke's a solid hitter. I mean, to me, look, once Greinke gets to 3,000 strikeouts, he's at 2,622. Um, so he needs, you know, three more years of 150 strikeouts, which I think Greinke is a clever enough pitcher to do. And I just think he's a guy who's never relied on stuff, so I think he will pitch into his 40s. To me, of every guy on this list, Greinke's got the clearest case into getting into the Hall of Fame. Six-time Gold Glove, six-time All-Star, Cy Young. Um, in 2015, had probably the best year that you and I have ever seen for a Cy Young runner-up. Um, I mean, the guy had oh, yeah. a 
166 ERA and won 19 games with a .844 whip. Jake Arrieta just had the best second half in baseball history. Um, so I think as long as Granky pitches like one or two more solid years, which I think he will, he's in. But what are your thoughts? I think if the Astros won that game, if Will Harris doesn't give up the homer to uh, Howie Kendrick, like Granky pitched a great game seven in the World Series. That's going to be forever forgotten because of everything that happened with Houston. But I think, sure. I mean, yeah, he's another guy. Once he hits the 3,000 milestone, send him. Just send him. I think even if, I think even if Granky becomes a little short of 3,000, you know, I think he's going to, he's over 200 wins. I mean, to me, he just, he's got the longevity and a good enough peak and the hardware where, uh, you know, really the only thing he's missing is a World Series ring. Um, the last guy they have on this list is Joey Votto. Um, the question is going to be, now that Votto is 35, I mean, he's sitting on 1,866 hits and 284 homers. Right now, his career is looking like it could be a Bobby Abreu type. Um, but again, you can't hide the fact that he's a career 307, 421, 519 hitter with a career 150 OPS plus. The war is 62, so it's, you know, teetering right around Hall of Fame territory. Um, in terms of his contract, he has four or five years left with the Reds. Um, I mean, what do you think? To me, if Votto could push that to, like, 330 homers and, like, 2,300 hits, then he's like Edgar Martinez who played the field. He would have to have a surgeon. But if I, mean, if I was going to – as of now, I'd say Joey Votto Hall of Fame odds are plus 250. And if he's missing well, the, half, the, and if he's going to miss half the season, plus two seventy-five. Let's take last year's numbers though, just for argument's sake. Say he has three and a half seasons left. Last year he had one hundred thirty-seven hits and fifteen homers, so that would give him um, another, we'll call it fifty home runs, which would put him at uh, three thirty-four. And in terms of the hits, it would give him another, you know, four hundred twenty-five or so, which would put him over twenty-three hundred. To me, then, you compare him and Edgar's numbers, and it gets interesting. I, I think he just is – Votto was I, – I, yeah. I, I just don't – I don't see it. All right, fair he enough. He doesn't – he didn't – he wasn't peak Votto. It seems – he's too much uh, – he doesn't have the traditional numbers. He's like a – he's a, a sabermetrics. He's an OBP guy. And fair, fair enough. All right, now I'm going to turn it over to you for our first ever Underdog Sports Baseball Show rewatchable segment. This week, the movie is going to be Rookie of the Year, the 1993 Disney classic, starring Thomas Ian Nicholas, who went on to become the star of American Pie. No, he is not the one who fucked the pie, so don't worry. You can show your kids this movie. Um, Bryce, tell us a little bit about this movie before we get into the discussion. All right, well, we're trying to steer clear of uh, copyright or just blatantly stealing. So we got our own discussion points. We'll talk through the movie. Uh, it's a good movie, heartwarming movie. Has highs and lows, some curveballs, some fastballs. Uh, no pie fucking, always, always not fake. But, you know, uh, it is a PG movie. All right, so first, the guy, the guy slips on a baseball. And then all of a sudden, he's in the cast for months and then can throw a ball for 450 feet chase. 
Well, yeah, so he slips, I, on, he slips on the baseball, and the doctor says that Henry's tendons have healed a little too tight. Um, and, yeah, he's in the outfield in the Cubs. The Wikipedia page has it officially um, at 435 feet away for what it's worth. Um, I mean, to me, this is – I worked out for, the, for Henry, you know, the star Henry Rowan Gardner in the long run, but to me, this is medical malpractice at its finest. How did you fuck up this kid healing his broken arm so much that – you know, there's so much velocity when he whips his arm back and forth that he goes from a scrub to somebody who could throw a baseball 100 miles per hour. I think you got to really be concerned about it because, I mean, that's, that's, that tendon is going to be tough. You can do more than just, uh, more than just, just a baseball throw. Could you imagine getting in a fight with that guy? I mean, he just lays the hammer down. could probably do some real damage to anyone that gets in his way. Or it's like, I'm, I'm going to just throw this out there. Like, say, like, me, you, and Henry Rowan Gardner, like, went to, like, a music concert together, and he's, like, fist bumping and moving his arm back and forth. Like, if you and I are dancing and vibing and happening to get in, a, in his way, like, and he what concert would forward, you, what concert would you, me, and Henry, or you, Henry Rowan Gardner, and I, what, are, what concert are the three of us most likely to attend? I have absolutely no idea. Well, that's one of the discussion questions. What, let me. We're, we're, I know the three. We're dealing. Like, if I we're, would it be rock? <laughs> would not be no. Man, maybe it would be. It would not be rap. Probably wouldn't be hip hop. Uh, I could. I, I think, could actually. I think we're going to a hootie concert. I could see the yeah, a hootie type concert that could be good for the three of us. Nothing too. Nothing too aggressive. Until Henry starts going haywire with his uh, tight ass elbow. But that's what I'm saying. Say we're dancing and Henry accidentally you know what? On his actually, arms and, think... and hits us in the face. Are we going to the hospital? Oh, we're definitely going to the hospital. And I think we'd actually – I'll take the hoodie one step further. I think we're better served at a bare-naked lady show because I think Henry's a little young and would probably like the, the goofiness, the goofy nature of the, of the bare-naked ladies more so than Darius and his down-to-earth. Somewhat serious. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I guess or maybe, maybe I guess possibly O Town. We could also do O Town. Okay, I like that. I guess one thing we should have led with led with about Henry is at the beginning of the movie, before he slips and falls on a baseball. I mean, he is an absolute scrub. He's the kid that they only put in right field at the end of the game because one of the kids, the nerdy kid with glasses, is sneezing too much. And it's just like, is there any wonder that this kid is an absolute scrub, given that he's wearing jeans to his little league game? Oh, it was pathetic, and he didn't. He, it was a mistake he kept making. Like I don't think he ever learned to take the jeans off. Like thank God the Cubs issued him an official uniform, because he would be showing up to these Cubs games in his like acid wash Ed Hardy jeans, which is just like was never cool. Will never be cool. Not even Mr. Rowan Garner could make them cool. No, you're you're a hundred percent right. Um, I mean, look. Henry, a 100-mile-per-hour fastball isn't a 100-miles-per-hour fastball. Um, obviously, it's something you and I can never hit. But, I mean, Henry, the entire movie, up until literally the very last scene of the movie, doesn't throw any off-speed pitches. You know, is it a little unrealistic to think that a big leaguers know a fastball's coming, that eventually Henry just isn't going to get rocked? Uh, God, it, it's tough to say. I, I don't think anyone's discussed uh discussed with him about how to locate the ball. They just saw unprecedented talent and gave him a green light. 
But man, I'll, I'll skip ahead here. Let me get out of the front. He he was mentored by someone. He was mentored by the one and only Gary Busey. And boy, if you're 13 years old, somehow got your way to the major leagues, is there a person on the planet you would rather have than Gary Busey? And you can't pick all of them as your mentor. All right. Well, well, here's my one thought. So Gary Busey's nickname uh, in the movie was Chet the Rocket Stedman. Um, so they wanted to pick somebody who may be as insane as the real-life Rocket, Roger Clemens, then in Gary yeah. Busey, it may have been brilliant casting. Um, I, I just, I mean, you, you and I, in full disclosure, you know, we sat in, at my house in Jersey a few weeks ago and watched this movie and had a very similar conversation live that you and I are having right now. And it's just like, of anybody that you could have cast in a movie to be a kid's role model and mentor, who wakes up in the casting department one day and goes, I got the perfect guy from. It's going to be Gary Busey. Like, God, I mean, look, not, it not, would not have been my first choice, but let's, like, oh, he, I guess he does. It's like, do with, a good was job. Eric Roberts not a, available? Was anyone else, was anyone else available? Was Dennis Quaid? <laughs> He's unbelievable to me. Like, I mean, look, it, well, it was 93. So. Emilio Estevez, he, he was the coach and uh, what's it called? I guess Emilio Estevez would have been a weird choice there. Who would you? Who could have been casted there if not Gary Busey? Who else could it have been? It's hard for me to answer that question because I immediately am drawn to people, you know, who played base, played people in baseball movies. Oh, like um, Costner, like a Costner or like a Tom Berenger from Major League. Um, even like a Tom Ooh. Selleck from Mr. Baseball. What about um, also from Major League? You could have gone Charlie Sheen if you really were committed to having the psycho be the pitching coach or be the, uh, be the, be the role model. True. Or if Wesley you really Sykes. wanted to go all in. Could have done – that Major League cast, that is something else, man. Those cast parties must have been – Travolta would have been funny. How funny would Travolta have been as a baseball player? I, I don't think they could have plausibly gotten Travolta hey, to give a convincing performance to to look like a baseball player. Um, this is going to be a really a, this is going to be a really outside the box pick by me, but I'm going to go with it. Um, I think my two choices that I think would have been good to play like the old veteran pitcher. Um, one of them, I think Jeff Bridges would have been great in this role. Yep. Okay. Um, but my choice is going to be somebody who actually played minor league baseball. I think Kurt Russell would have been perfect for this role. Yeah, no that 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 makes sense. I like the Jeff. I like the Jeff Bridges song. I also think maybe Jeff Daniels could have done it. Bryce, it's so funny you say that because before I said Kurt Russell, Jeff Daniels was going to be my second choice. Well, you said Jeff, and I was thinking Jeff. But either way, I think we agree Gary Busey, probably not the role he was meant for. Uh, it's just it's, – it's unbelievable to me. Um, it's yeah, a real – but some – yeah, go on. I mean, the, the Gary Busey thing is one thing for me. Um, you know, before we get too far into the baseball part of everything, um, you know, I, I think on some level I, I want to talk about the adults in this movie and the lack, lack there of good adults. I mean, Henry's mother, Mary, seems very caring, but, you know, again, I, I think as a mother, I would be very skeptical and scared to let my 13-year-old boy, not only in a big league clubhouse, but traveling the world pretty much on his own as a major league baseball player. Well, um, Chase, that's, and later, I got I to gotta, 
I gotta stop you there because somebody who was actually perfectly cast in this movie, uh, Daniel Stern, the pitching coach. Let's let's pause on Daniel Stern for a second because you and I have a lot to say about Daniel Stern. Um, and later on in the movie, uh, him and his two friends miraculously um, have a motor for a boat, and somehow with they go from the boat not working to all of a sudden they have a professional boat that they take these three girls on uh, out on, which. In itself, it's crazy that these three 13-year-old kids can get a boat to work, but what kind of parents do they have that they're letting three kids take a motorboat out on their own at age 13? Like, With I know Cohen, it was the 90s, but are they not scared at all that these kids are going to drown? Well, look, I mean, if you're wearing he, – he was rocking the jeans, keep in mind. Henry did wear the jeans. No life jackets. No life jackets for jeans. And, look, if your kid is wearing jeans – yeah, I would. I would probably trust my kid. If my kid came up, if my kid was asking me to do anything, but he promised me he'd wear his jeans, I would. I'd say, you know what? Go ahead, man. You, you, you're, you're a loser. You're not getting in any trouble anyway. Have fun with it. Enjoy your jeans. Uh, but okay. The parents, the mom, she had the, she had the fiance, who she ended up rocking in the face. That's towards the end of the movie. Not Jack not Brandfield. Really, yeah, fucking douche, if I do say so myself. But he was, he did his, they were doing fine. They were doing, they were fine, but then he got a little aggressive, went a bit outside the, uh, outside the rules of Major League Baseball. He was in cahoots with the Cubs, the Cubs GM. Uh, you want to explain the legalities behind that deal, Chase, or the last era? Yeah, so this was, you know, um, Jack, the step, pseudo-stepfather. I don't know if they're actually married. I think they're just dating at the time. I think they're, um, I think they're engaged. I think it's an engagement. He, he gets very jealous that Henry's mother, Mary, is, you know, starting to spend a lot of time with Chet Stepman. Um, so he gets Chet Stepman benched, and the uh, GM of the Cubs, whose grandfather is the owner of the team, uh, he says they're going to sell Henry to the New York Yankees for $25 million. This movie took place in 1993. Kurt Flood made free agency happen in the mid-60s. You can't just sell a player to another team. You know, th- this isn't the cast system. That's not how this works. There's legal hoops to go through. Um, and, again, I know it's a kid's movie, but, you know, that's a pretty glaring mess-up in terms of how the – the sports world and really the real world in general works when it comes to, you know, business transactions. Yeah, it was, uh, it was bad. It was a lot of, uh, it, it was, it ended up being the downfall of the relationship between uh, Henry's mom and this doucher. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the highest paid player in 1993 would have been Ryan Sandberg at only twenty at about seven million a year, or bond. And the Cubs are already paying them that in theory. And the Cubs should have already been paying Sandberg all that much. So I guess from a business point, it did make sense for them to move off him and, and try and try and sell him over to Yankees. But Henry had already determined that he was no longer interested in playing professional baseball. He wanted to resume a normal life, which I, I think it's tough. Do you think it's possible to resume a normal? Do you have any? Uh, are you? Would you say you're any friends with? Are you friends with any child celebrities? Because I am not. Um, I am on some level. One of my friends, Dana, who I went to high school and college with, um, was one of the stars of the Despicable Me franchise. But that's about as far as I get. Okay, but how how did she? Uh, 
how did she handle that success? Was it like, was she walking she around went high to school being like, what did she, when did that, was, was she, she in college when that happened? No, the first movie I think was when we were like in middle school. Um, I, I, she was super normal and down to earth with it. She at no point was walking around like her shit don't stink. But um, again, she could have been an exception to the rule. My biggest takeaway when Henry goes back to normal, um, he's playing outfield where for his team. And, again, this is after he played in the major leagues, and by the end of the movie, the Cubs win the World Series, and he's still wearing the fucking jeans. I believe they only win the pennant. Did they get the, did they get the World Series ring, or did they just make it to the, to the No, he's, he hits the movie ends, and he's holding up the World Series ring. Um, you're right, you're great. right, you're, right, be, you're right, my bad. And to be honest with it, they should have made a bigger deal about that because the Cubs hadn't won a World Series um, since 1908, so it would have been cut at 85 years as opposed to in real life how it got cut 23 years later in 2016. Interesting. And if they got that World Series ring done, if they got their draft done in 85 years, they would have actually they, – assuming history played out as it did, the, uh, the Red Sox taking 86 years would have out – they would have been the longer cursed franchise. It's true. 1918 would have been longer. Um, I mean, a couple other things I guess I got in mind with Henry's playing ability. I want to end with the pitching coach because this is one of my favorite movie oh, characters of, of all time. Um, in the oh, top yeah. of the ninth inning, the Cubs are playing the Mets uh, for the division title and to move on to the World Series. The Rocket pitch pitches well. Um, Henry pitches the seventh and eighth. And then on the top of the ninth, he slips on a baseball, reversing the effects of the first fall and reducing his arm strength to normal. Does it make it all scientific sense that one fall can all of a sudden loosen his tights, loosen those tendons to the point where now he can't throw a baseball at all? Like, where is the I mental mean, basis for this movie? We should get uh, we should get Fauci on next episode. He could he could probably explain this better than I. But you'd have to think if it was a fluke injury that and that that tendon is being held together so tenuously that the slightest the slightest interruption of its normal activity could cause complete chaos. So that I will actually grant the medical green light, the medical okay on. I, I think that was, one, uh, that was part of the course. One thing that I forgot to mention in terms of irresponsible adults, adults uh, the manager for the Cubs, Sal Martinella, um, which again, it's, it's crazy that his name is Sal Martinella because uh, you know, you hear the name Sal Martinelli, aren't you picturing an Italian guy from New York? I am picturing, like, a very heavy set Italian man from New York, probably eating a sandwich yeah. as we speak. Yeah, Sal Martinella was a black guy with a watch. Well, there's nothing, I mean, you know what they say, well, everyone should wear a watch, you know, it's always good to know what time it is, especially in 93. You talk about irresponsible adults, though. Um, I know Henry is a baseball player and got paid as such, but this kid's 13 years old. He's five foot nothing. He's got even less muscle on his body than Chris Sale. How in the world are you letting him go up there to face big league pitching as a hitter? No, you, they shouldn't have done that. That was bad. That was reckless. One, aside from the, uh, like the, the, the safety ramifications, there's no way this guy can hit. He's a one-trick. He's a one-trick pony. He can pitch. He has a, a fluke injury. Gave him a 100-mile-per-hour heater. Uh, did anybody think he could hit? And what were, what's the best-case scenario? He's got no strike zone or walk. But a big league or pitcher, you don't even have to – You get beamed. You get, I mean, if Henry gets hit by a pitch, he's dead. I, and you know what? I, 
I wouldn't be shocked if in a real in a real world setting, if this were to happen, if he gets beamed intentionally. Because we talked about it earlier, like these minor leaguers, their resentment towards Tebow for skipping steps. You think that all these guys who worked hard at this were just going to willingly uh, just like let this thirteen-year-old who got there by accident? No, no, no. He he was going to have to pay for that. I mean, just to put into perspective how bad he was in baseball before this fluke injury, and we forgot to cover this, uh, in his playoff game where he's in the outfield with Gene, he not only misses the ball, but his hat is over his eyes when he goes to get it. And while blindfolded, instead of hitting a cutoff man, he throws the ball over the fence for his team to lose. This kid was that type of kid. Yeah, he, uh, he probably wouldn't even make our softball team. And, yeah, and our um, softball team was pretty bad. You know, I, I know, you know, you and I will, we'll, me, you, our friends, you know, we'll throw childish insults at each other now and then. But are there any big league players that you think have such thin skin that, you know, Henry going, pitcher's got a big butt and forcing an errant pickoff throw? Or, you know, once he loses his fastball, you know, he gets a guy by throwing the baseball up in the air and taunting him and tags him out a second after an intentional walk. I mean, are there any big league players that are going to, you know, get so angry at a 13-year-old kid that they're going to fuck up their playing career and cost their team out? Um, maybe Bauer. Bauer. Bauer seems to have been pretty – That's true. Bauer did throw a ball about 400 feet out of the stadium in Cleveland. Bauer threw the – I think that was in Kansas City, but – True. Good call. Bauer, Bauer uh, threw – but again, Henry, there was something to his voice that was very annoying. He he had that that pitch was a little high. Nanny nanny, it it was it was an ear. Nanny nanny nanny. Yeah, it had that pitcher's got a big butt. Oh God, chick, that is awful. That is awful. (laughs) Yeah, I'm taking this right now. So maybe it would work. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? All right, the last guy that we're going to talk about. I mean, oh. Daniel Stern, I, I think you ask anybody what his best role is, it's either as the narrator of the Wonder Years um, or as one of the Sticky Bandits or the Wet Bandits in Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. He, is, he, he is pitching he is pretty Coach good Phil Brickma. Pitching Coach Phil Brickma, I mean, to me, he absolutely steals the show in this movie. Um, the only reason he's the pitching coach is, according to manager Sal Martinella, I hit Brickma in the minor leagues. He's been with me ever since. I mean, some of the highlights of this guy, you know, they're on the flight, him and Henry, and, you know, he, you, he has such great one-liners as, um, you know, I, I take the dessert and I put it in the doggy bag and all of a sudden I got breakfast. He talks about how he takes ice and puts it in the microwave uh, to heal himself, which is hot ice, which for anyone is a brain, is water. Um, I mean, he's packing epic lips the entire movie and swallowing his dip spit half the time. Um, oh, yeah, he is not good. For me, the two biggest things, though, are twice throughout the movie, once in his hotel, he gets stuck in between the two adjourning doors. <laughs> that is the funniest, suite. probably my favorite scene in the movie. It is so and, utterly ridiculous and, that a grown man, well, is like <laughs> a Chris Dale-type body, <laughs> super skinny, gets trapped in between the doors. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Uh, well, well, the best part is the guy from the hotel who, before that scene happens, goes, Hello, I'm sorry. I think your door must be broken. <laughs> um, and he not only gets stuck there, but he's dumb enough that later he's going to get sunflower seeds 
and get stuck in the equipment, like, I guess, cage during the game. Um, which I guess my two questions for you is, one, how can you be so dumb to let that happen twice? But, two, what kind of fucking team doesn't notice that their pitching coach is met, missing during two separate games and goes to look for him? You know, I know Henry, it seems like Henry and Chet Stepman are the only two play, people who pitch this entire movie, but eventually you're going to need the pitching coach. Yeah, I mean, do you need the pitching coach if your pitching coach is a uh... – Again, he's swallowing dipstick. He is. He's getting himself trapped in hotel doors. He's getting himself locked in the batting cage during a game. He is. He is utterly ridiculous. And he, uh, at some point, I think he says he's talking about spitballs, and he goes, "I haven't seen a spitball since like Scuffy McGee." Or no? It's, no, it's, uh, it's I, the, I the floater. It's the floater. The floater. Yes. <laughs> Hey, I got the quote right here. Hey, your mom has a pretty good arm. I ain't seen the floater pitch since Scuffy McGee. <laughs> I mean, he's it's it's unequivocally one of my favorite movie characters ever. Oh yeah, he is he is absurd. Everything he says is ridiculous. Um, my great guy. my concluding my concluding thought. You on want the quote on this? Here, I got the. Uh, I have another another quote from him from this movie. I wrap the cake up in my vomit bag and voila, breakfast. <laughs> conservation, managing resources. That is the key to baseball. My last thought on Henry Rowan Gardner in this movie is, you know, in the era of making sure pitchers aren't overused and, you know, supreme load management when it comes to pitchers, doesn't it seem like Henry was throwing two to three innings in every single game? I don't care what your tendons are like. You can't do that. I mean, you can't put that – I mean, if he's a superhuman tendon, he can. But he was – again, they had him bat, so he was definitely going out there for multiple innings. Uh, I guess it just goes – like I said before on this podcast, man, my favorite team of the decade was that Royals team that relied so heavily on the bullpen. And I guess uh, I guess I would have been a big fan of these Cubs teams if I, if I was around to see it. But I was born five years after. And you've never trembled in fear like Henry Rowan Gardner at home plate going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And his mom in the background at the flower shop going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then he almost gets hit by a fastball. Um, but Rookie of the Year, that's our first of many rewatchables to come in the next few weeks. Um, Bryce, any concluding thoughts on the movie or for this week's podcast? Yeah. Um, rest in peace, Kenny Rogers. The Gambler. I like The Gambler. Good song. At first, I wasn't 100% sure if it was Kenny Rogers, the singer, or Kenny Rogers, the MLB pitcher. Um, but either way, very sad. And um, I also learned that Kenny Rogers has a very famous cover of uh, We've Got Tonight, which is one of my favorite Bob Seger songs. And he sings the greatest the song about the little boy in a baseball hat. So that is correct as well. If Beck could end it with that, that would be – but I don't think he has that song. Would be a nice touch. Anyway, I won't sing it for you, but uh, rest in peace to the gambler, to the greatest, Kenny Rogers. Rest in peace to the gambler, and even though baseball isn't playing right now, my concluding thought is shout-out to Marcus Stroman on Twitter, who is recruiting every American all-star in baseball to play on the 2021 World Baseball Classic team. They're the defending champs. I was there when they beat the Dominican Republic uh, in the semifinals in 2017 at Dodger Stadium. It was epic, and I'm looking forward to USA going back-to-back and taking home the gold next spring. With Bryce Holden, my name is Chase Medorsky. 
This is the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. Stay safe.